You can open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 17. If you need a Bible, would you raise your hand? The ushers are glad to bring one to you. And if you don't own a Bible, you are welcome to keep that Bible as a gift. But yeah, keep your hand up so that the the ushers can see you there. And we are in John chapter 17, continuing our study through the Gospel of John. And as we continue last week, we concluded the words of Jesus in teaching his disciples in this, what is called the upper room discourse. And the words of him, just he's, he needs to leave them with this. Here is your instruction. Here is your preparation, the essential preparation uh, as you prepare for the departure of your friend, your savior, Jesus. And of course, they were, they were uh, troubled by this news. They were troubled at the idea that Jesus was leaving them. But of course, we got to study through and see in Acts chapter 14, 15, 16, there's all this great benefit to the fact that Jesus would have to leave them. And Jesus was trying to prepare them for that and get them to understand the benefit. Jesus said himself, it is to your advantage that I leave because of the coming of the Holy Spirit, because of the peace that he would leave with them, uh, because of all these blessings and, and, and the life that would come after death, the joy that would come through the sorrow. And so now we pick up this week, and this is the great conclusion to the upper room discourse is that Jesus now brings them to a place of prayer. And looking at the prayer of Jesus here, he's setting a glorious example for his disciples. And that's what John chapter 17 is just a prayer. It is, it, is, it is one of the longest prayers that we see in the Bible, and it is so much pure, beautiful love that Jesus shows for his disciples in praying for them praying for this unity of the body of Christ. And we're gonna get to look at these various things throughout, and we're gonna actually study the whole chapter this morning. I know that is not usual for us on a Sunday morning to go through a whole chapter, but being that this is one prayer of Jesus, there was no good spot for us to break it up. We need to go in deep. So uh, hang tight, get your pillows, get, no, I'm I'm just kidding. We're gonna be here until the bonfire later. no, we are gonna, we're going to be blessed by this and hearing the heart of Jesus and the prayer and how he teaches his disciples. This, as we look at this chapter, we see this passage is really Jesus fulfilling the role of the high priest in a glorious way. And in, 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 by way of introduction, in Leviticus chapter 16, you don't have to turn there, it says this, In verse 17, it's speaking of Aaron, who is the high priest, saying, there shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. Now, as this chapter breaks down, and you could probably, in your Bible, it may even have these headings, that Jesus prays for himself, for his disciples, and for all believers. You see, that was the role in Leviticus of the high priest, was to go in and make atonement for himself, for his household, and for the assembly, for the nation, for all of the people of Israel. And that's what Jesus is doing now in fulfilling the role of the high priest. Because no longer would it be needed for the high priest to enter in to the Holy of Holies and make atonement for the people. But now Jesus, he's breaking down that wall even now before he goes to the cross. As he enters in into this fellowship with the Father, He prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, his household, and he prays for the generations of the disciples to come, the assembly. Jesus is fulfilling the role of the high priest and not just establishing, but fulfilling proper atonement here in John 17. So we begin to read, and I will ask you to stand with me as we will read through 
the chapter of John 17, says this, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all, are my, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name, those whom you have given me, that they may be as one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, and they may be, that they may be one just as we are, I in them, and you in me, and they, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am that they may behold your glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. You may be seated. So this is the prayer of Jesus, the example that he sets for his disciples, the essential of going to prayer after this really great sermon, great teaching that he gives his disciples. Now he goes on to show them how to pray, show them his heart for them, show him his heart of of love and relationship with the Father. And in these first five verses, we see Jesus, first of all, speaking these words. After he spoke these words, after he spoke the words of John 13 through 16, after he spoke these words of the upper room discourse, this teaching, this preparation for them for his departure from this world, he says that he lifted his eyes to heaven. He looked up. He gives us this place of posture toward heaven, this place of posture toward glorifying God and recognizing that God is above. 
right? And we, as Jesus does, when we pray, we often will have the posture of, of humility, which is a good thing, and we'll bow our heads, close our eyes, but we too can have a posture of looking to Jesus, looking up, looking to the Father as Jesus did. And he says, Father, the hour has come. This is it. He's been talking about for some time, the hour is, is coming. The hour is coming. The hour is coming. Even last week, we talked about that phrase, a little while, and what that figurative phrase meant. As Jesus said, a little while to them. And they didn't have an understanding. What does that mean? They want to know, when is Jesus going to the cross? When is this departure going to happen that he's been talking about? And now, he says, the hour has come. Judas has betrayed him. The work is in motion. He will be arrested in the garden very soon after this. We're going to look at, we're going to see this take place. And so Jesus now goes to the Father, and he's in this time of desperation, saying the hour has come. And it is so important that when the hour has come, when we face the difficulty, when, when the hour has come for us to face the hard times, that we look up and that we pray. Following the example of Jesus, but this is what he does. The hour has come. His arrest and his crucifixion is at hand. It is coming right then. Any moment now, the hour has come. And the hour has come for this, and he says that, that you would glorify your son, and your son may glorify you. His glory, and this is our first point here, Jesus has several prayer requests along the way. As he goes to the Father in prayer, the first one is glorify your son. And his glory would be the cross. His glory would be the crucifixion. The resurrection. And he says, glorify your son so that you would be glorified. So it's coming back to glorify your son, which is what he's saying here is prepare your son to be the acceptable sacrifice. Glorify your son to be the acceptable sacrifice, that preparation. If you might remember in Genesis chapter 22, and we're not going to turn there, but the whole chapter is about Abraham going to sacrifice his son Isaac, as God commanded him to do. And Abraham responds in faith, and he brings his son up the mountain, and as they're going, Isaac asks him, he says, Father, where is the sacrifice? And Abraham says to his son, the Lord will prepare himself the sacrifice. Now what do we see? Jesus saying, Father, prepare your son to be the atonement. Remember we said Jesus is fulfilling the role of the high priest here in John 17. He's entering into to, to this direct access to the Father that he talked about last week, saying, I'm going to give you direct access. Now I'm going to show you direct access to the Father. And he shows them this direct access and this, the role of the high priest that would be to make atonement for himself, his household, and for the assembly, Jesus is showing them proper atonement. And he's saying, Father, glorify your son, prepare your son to be the atonement, to be the acceptable sacrifice, fulfilling Genesis chapter 22. The Lord will provide himself, his son, to be the atonement. So now in this time, for the Lord to provide and prepare Jesus, then he says that, it, would you glorify your son so that, first of all, you would be glorified? Your glory comes through my preparation of atonement, through, through my, uh, my sacrifice that is coming. That is the glory of God, that his son would be given. But then further, as you have given him authority over all flesh, this is the son saying that you've given me authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Jesus is saying glorify your son because it glorifies you that it would be acceptable and glorify your son because it gives life 
The glorification of Jesus Christ would bring eternal life to those who the Father has given him. He's speaking, first of all, specifically about his disciples, these men that God had given to him. Now 11, right? This is eternal life. Then he gives an explanation of what eternal life looks like. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Glorify your son because it glorifies you. Glorify your son because it brings eternal life. And here is what eternal life looks like. It's the relationship. Knowing God and knowing Jesus, and this translates to a knowing experience with the Father and the Son. The basics of the gospel here Jesus presents very clearly. That Jesus came from God the Father and brings life through relationship with him. Because the Son completed then, it says, he completed the work. I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do, verse 4. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus, the Son, completed the work, and he's saying that is another reason to glorify the Son, because he has completed the work of salvation. And we know that Jesus has completed the work. We know that he went to the cross, we know that he rose from the dead, and that work would be complete. And now, he says in verse 5, bring me back. And Jesus has said this before, I've come from the Father, I go to the Father, I go to prepare a place for you, but it's not without the preparation of the pure and perfect sacrifice, the spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, and that's the preparation he's asking the Father for, prepare me, glorify me, and bring me back to the glory that I once experienced the glory that I once possessed in heaven. It says that he had beforehand, and that brings us back to John chapter one, verse one. And we studied it over a year ago. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus was the word. Jesus is the word. Jesus was in the beginning with God and he was glorified, and all things were made through him and by him. He's the source of life, and he was in that glorified state, and now he's saying, bring me back to that place. Glorify your son to be prepared to be back in that place of glory once again. And so verse six, we continue. Here's how the Father and the Son, as Jesus brings this request to glorify your Son, here's how the Father and Son are glorified. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. It's the revelation of God. This is how the Father and Son are glorified as Jesus, will he asked to fulfill this request to glorify the Son. Here's how it's going to happen. Here's how it already has begun to happen. As Jesus says, I have manifested your name. I have done that work with these men as it has been set forth, I've done the work. And God has been revealed That's what Jesus has done. Revealing the work of the Father, the purpose of the Father, the heart of the Father, the character of the Father. That's what Jesus is all about. That's what he's been about. And so now the, the Father and the Son are both glorified through that, through this revelation of God. The revelation, and as it speaks of the name, it says, of your name, that is all-encompassing the character, the heart, the nature of God. And that's what Jesus has done. He has he manifested, he has revealed the name, the, the name of the Father. And now also the Father and Son are glorified through the response of the disciples. It proves that it's all true. 
The response of of the disciples is going to prove the truth, and it will continue to glorify the Father and glorify the Son for generation after generation after generation. Here's what he says in verse 7. Now they have known that all all things which you have... I'm sorry, before verse 7, we finish verse 6. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. This is the response to the revelation of who God is and what he does, what his work and what his purpose is. It's obedience. The response of the disciples is that they kept your word. And God, this, as, as they would keep the word, it's speaking of obedience and it's speaking of the work of God in them. That the word of God has not returned void. The word of God has taken root and has actually changed them. They have kept your word. Will we allow the word of God to actually change us? Will we allow the word of God that as we have God's name, as we have his word is right in front of us and he is constantly revealed in his nature and in his character time and time again, how do we respond? Is it just a bunch of words on a page or do we respond in obedience representing the fact that God is working in us? And that's the response of the disciples. This is what Jesus is saying. They have kept your word. Now, they, don't have an, they don't, aren't all knowing, all understanding at this point. They're still learning. But they've kept your word. They have been transformed by the truth. But further, he says this. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given them the words which you have given me, and they have received them. First of all, there's knowledge. The response to the revelation of God is obedience, and it's knowledge. It's growing in knowledge. They know this. Why? Because Jesus gave them information. I don't know, you know, we're all different people, right? As a student in middle school and high school, I was not a student who would receive, right? The knowledge was like in one ear, out the other. I just sat there and I endured the class. I got through in any way that I possibly could get through. I would fill my time with all the things other than what was happening in front of me, right? The the chalkboard and uh, learn this. And I'm like, I don't want to be here, right? And some of you guys are like, yeah, I can relate to that, I I was that guy. I was just like, let me pass this 45-minute class, do whatever it takes so I could stay on the basketball team. That's really all that matters, right? But this is the reality. So the knowledge, they heard from Jesus. They heard the good news. They heard from Jesus who God is, what his nature and his character is, and they responded to it. And this knowledge that they know all things are from the Father, they then received. They were good students, not like me. They received. It wasn't in one ear and out the other. And after they received, and this is the, great, this is the most important response, because knowledge alone we know puffs up, but love edifies, right? And so as they received, what was their response to receiving? It wasn't just words. It was actually receiving the words and listening to the words that, that had been given to them from the Father through Jesus It says that they believed. The greatest response to hearing and receiving is believing. It is a required response. But this is what Jesus is now presenting to the Father as he prays, Father, glorify your Son. And here's the thing. I've done the work. I've done what you've told me to do. And I have pointed these men right to you. I have connected them to you in relationship. And they've responded in obedience. They've responded in listening, receiving, and believing that all things are from you. And that you sent me. They know you more now because of me. Do we, could we say the same? Do we follow this example of Jesus? Do people know God more? Do they know Jesus more 
because of us? Or do we draw people after ourselves in our own ideology? We've said this several times before. Jesus came to fulfill the work of the Father. He didn't come on his own mission. Fully God became man to fulfill the same work that God was desiring to fulfill. And then we talked about it even over the last couple weeks that the Holy Spirit would then come to continue the same work on the same mission. And now all this preparation is to get the disciples on the same mission. The disciples have responded in belief and understanding. They lacked total understanding, no doubt, but they believed and received the truth, the essential truth of who Jesus is, who God is, and the heart, the character, the nature of God. So we continue, verse nine. And this is our next point of the next request of Jesus. Preserve our disciples. Jesus prays for them, verse nine, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus prays for the disciples. He doesn't pray for the world. He says that specifically, I do not pray for the world. We know that Jesus loves the world. We know that God loves the world, but right here and now, this is a prayer of preparation. The world would come to know Jesus through the word of the disciples, these are the men who were so closely connected with and following Jesus, and now as Jesus is departing, he's praying for them. They need prayer. They're losing the man that they left everything to follow. They need prayer. In their finite minds, they're thinking, man, we're losing right now. Things are going to get really rough. Jesus has told them that. You will face tribulation. It's going to get really bad. Jesus is going to depart Gonna, the world is going to be against them. They need prayer. Jesus prays for them because Jesus knows their need. We know that God loves the world, but here and now he is preparing for the world to hear the good news. And it starts with him praying for the disciples. Recognizing, Jesus recognizes they belong to the Father and then that he says, we are one. So they belong to us. What's yours is mine. What's mine is yours. They are ours. And we have this perfect unity. And this is, a, this is now a springboard to later go into a whole discussion about unity. But the greatest unity is that of the Father and the Son. Two different persons of the triune Godhead. Perfect unity on the same mission. But Jesus had spent so much time preparing these men, now he needed to pray for them. He knew their need. And guys, prayer is the, the best preparation. Whatever it is that we're facing, whatever it is that we're going to face, we may not even know it, but know this, Jesus he prayed for his disciples knowing what they were gonna face. They didn't quite understand. They didn't know how difficult it was going to be, but Jesus did and he prayed. That was his response. That was his preparation. Jesus for so long had been with them and protecting them and keeping them all along as he's gonna to continue to say, verse 11, now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus was with them, keeping them. Jesus was the one preserving them, protecting them, keeping them on mission, keeping them focused and not distracted, and not caught up in wickedness. You know, over the last few weeks, we've seen Jesus say in this text how these are the men who've been chosen, right? The disciples were chosen. 
And I believe that the disciples were chosen because Jesus fully knew and understood the destruction that they probably would have caused had they not been walking with him. And it humbles me because I'm like, man, if I'm called to the ministry, then it's pretty clear that God knows the destruction that I could cause apart from walking in that calling. But let that be humbling to each of us. Walking with Jesus is a, is a great comfort, a great protection, recognizing the destruction that we could cause outside of walking with Jesus. But as Jesus was keeping them all along, now as he's about to depart, he asks the Father to preserve them. Would you keep them? I'm not gonna be with them anymore. Would you keep them? Would you protect them? Because they need it. They need to be kept, and they need to be kept through his name, his character, his nature, his power, his authority. That they might, and we might to this day, by the name of God, which being all that power and authority is character and nature, that we might be kept by the name of God. And that they may be one as we are one. He says to the Father, as we are one. And, that, and what, the, what it translates to here is that Jesus is saying that they would continue in unity. They've been on mission with Jesus. They have that common goal. They have this understanding of the goal and of the mission. And they have a certain unity. And also, if you remember last week, we talked about they're going to be scattered. At the arrest, at the, at the crucifixion, they're all going to be scattered about. They're going to run, some of them, and hide. And then what is Jesus praying for? Make them one. Bring them back together because they need it. They not only need this prayer, they not only need God to keep them by his power and authority, but they need each other. And that's what Jesus prays for. Know the heart, understand the heart of Jesus throughout this text, guys. He prays for his disciples that they would understand even their need for each other. And let that pass down through generations to us today that Jesus prayed that we would understand. Jesus prayed that we would know how much we need each other. We'll get more into that later on as we talk about unity in the final section of this text. But that they would be one as the Father and Son are one. This is a prayer of unity of the, for the disciples that they, as they would be scattered after the arrest and crucifixion, that they would be brought together, that they would understand unity at that point. And he's, Jesus saying, look, I kept them. Again, this was the mission that I was on that you sent me to do this work. I kept them, except, of course, the son of perdition, Judas. And we've studied, we've talked about Judas, except for him, I've kept them, but remember, almost in a sense of like, we know that Judas was, this was to fulfill prophecy. This was to fulfill the scripture, that Judas would be part of the 12, and that Judas would betray Jesus. Ultimately, Jesus didn't lose Judas, did he? Judas betrayed. But Jesus knew it was going to happen, and the Father knew it was going to happen. But now he says, Father, keep them. And right on the heels of talking about the son of perdition, talking about Judas who betrayed him, he says, but Father, keep them. The rest of them, keep them in my joy. Because Judas lost the joy. Judas rejected the joy. He walked away from the joy of the Lord. As Jesus had spoken to the disciples and demonstrated to the, to the disciples many times what joy is, now he's saying, keep them in my joy, that my joy may be fulfilled in their lives. And the joy of Jesus, as we've said before, is the salvation of men. The joy that was set before him was that he endured the cross. 
And so now he wants his disciples to be kept and walking in that joy, that that joy would be fulfilled. The work of redemption, the work of salvation would be fulfilled. That's what Jesus' desire was for his disciples, that they would be filled with joy, leading people in an understanding of salvation and the work of redemption that Jesus would complete. And then he says to keep them from the evil one. Again, on the heels of talking about Judas, who betrayed Jesus, who had believed the lie of the devil, who had not kept himself from the evil one. Now Jesus says, keep them from the evil one. Keep them from that same influence. And he says clearly, don't, don't take them from the world. Don't keep them from the world. They need to be in the world to change the world, to impact the world. They're called to it. But keep them from the evil one. Protect them and keep them from going the way of the son of perdition. Because they are not of this world, verse 16, just as I am not. They have an eternal mission now because of what? Well, as we looked at verses six through eight, because of these things, because they have received and believed and walked in obedience and kept his word, because of that, They're on an eternal mission. So keep them focused on the eternal mission. Keep them from the evil one who is desperately trying to pick them off. Just as Jesus himself was on that same eternal mission. Then he says, and he continues to explain this, verse 17. What is the eternal mission? Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. This is our next point. Jesus prays to the Father to sanctify the disciples. The word sanctify is speaking of a dedication and a commitment that they would be set apart for the desired work of the Lord. And Jesus even says here in verse 19 that he himself has been sanctified, that he's been set apart to set the example for the disciples to also be set apart. But sanctification is a process. And Jesus is leaving. He's been leading them in sanctification, but now he says to the Father, keep them, protect them, preserve them, sanctify them, set them apart. Understand that sanctification is a process, and it is happening. It is going to keep going until the day we see Jesus face to face. This sanctification would need continual attention, so Jesus prays to the Father to continue to give them this attention that they need. Jesus was with them, helping them in their sanctification process, and now no longer would be with them, so ask the Father for help. And Jesus said in chapter 14 that he would pray for this, and now here's Jesus praying for it. John 14, verse 16, he says, I will pray the Father that he will give you another helper, the Holy Spirit, that he may abide with you forever. And so as Jesus said he would, now he is praying for that help. He's fulfilling exactly what he said he would. He's giving the disciples exactly what he said he would give them, prayer. He's praying the disciples would be dedicated to the Father and dedicated to the work. He's saying, look, verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Jesus has a trust for the disciples now because of their obedience, because they have received and believed, because they have a certain understanding that was essential understanding and because they would witness the resurrected Christ. So Jesus is saying here, he trusts the disciples and he's presenting that to the Father. So how would they be sanctified and sent? By truth. That's it. 
by the word of God, and by the work of Jesus. That's it. We don't have any other part of our sanctification process other than the word of God and by the work of Jesus Christ. And we try to add a lot of other things into the process. Now, we have things in our lives that challenge our sanctification, like children, right? They challenge our sanctification. But the process, it only happens through truth and the work of Jesus, the word of God and the work of Jesus Christ. And what is the gospel of John, we've said many times, is all about the words and the works of Jesus Christ. So how are they to be sanctified and sent? By the word of their testimony of who Jesus is and what he's done. By the work of Jesus Christ, Jesus was set apart for the work so they would also be set apart for the work. Verse 20. In this final section here, verses 20 to 26, our final point Jesus prays to the Father to unify all believers. He says in verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, not for just his followers, not just for his disciples at this time, in this place, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. As he even said already that this is how, this is how the, uh, the sanctification and that they would be sent is through the word of God, and through the word of the testimony that is pointing people to the work of Jesus Christ, that's going to point to the sanctification. That's going to, to be the thing that sends them is the work of Jesus. Now he's saying that that word would go out. And I pray not just for them that the word would go out, but I pray for all those who would receive the word that goes out. All those who would follow the this, this same example of receiving and believing as these disciples did, I pray for all believers that they all may be one. Those who would believe through the word of the disciples, the disciples had a great ministry that would come a great ministry that would continue after the resurrection on the basis of the resurrection and their testimony of who Jesus is and what he has done. We've said it before, but we're all here today because of the resurrection. We're all here today because of those men who went out and told people that Jesus is alive. If they didn't, where would we be? If they were silent if they were just like, I think it maybe it was Jesus, but we'll just keep it to ourselves, where are we now? We're nowhere. But because of those who witnessed the resurrection, here we are today. And Jesus prays now for the many generations of Christians because of what these disciples had seen and experienced, because of what they had heard, because they had kept the word because they had received and believed and now, now they would become eyewitnesses to the resurrection and to the ascension that changed the world. And so Jesus prays for all believers. Guys, this is great news. Jesus prays for us. We are a part of this, verse 20 and 21. This is us. Jesus is actually praying for us in John chapter 17. What an amazing blessing and encouragement that we should always remember that Jesus prayed for us. Thousands of years ago, Jesus prayed for us. And what was his prayer? Not that we would have all good feelings. Not that everything would be blessing in our lives. Not that we would have all the things we ever wanted. Not that fill in the blank. Jesus prayed that we would be one in what is going on in the world today. What is going on in the church today? Are we one? 
We should be. And the lack of oneness, the lack of unity in the church is on us. Jesus did the work. Jesus prayed to the Father that we would be one, and we're the ones walking in disobedience. He prays that we would be one from that day forward, that all believers, that we would have unity. But listen, this is important. Unity is not uniformity. Unity is not the idea that everyone thinks or acts or looks or sounds the same. In fact, unity requires differences. Much like we talked about last week, joy requires sorrow. Unity requires differences. Unity doesn't, it doesn't add up if everybody's just the same. This is why God gave us free will. So that we could be one by the power of Jesus Christ and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's, the, it's great evidence, once again, of the resurrection. Oneness. Unity. Like I said, much like joy, true joy requires sorrow, unity requires differences. And this is what is important to remember. The Lord hates division. Proverbs chapter six talks about these things the Lord hates, and one of them, he says, and one who sows discord among the brethren. Division in the church, this is the enemy's tactic Division in the body of Christ. The enemy seeks whom he may devour, and he attempts to divide and conquer. He desires to get the sheep alone. He's prowling. It says like a lion. He's prowling about, seeking who he may devour. He wants to get the sheep alone, and then when he gets the sheep isolated, he can pick them off one at a time. This is why the Lord hates division. This is why Jesus prayed for unity. And this is why isolation that COVID brought is so dangerous. What did we see over the last 19 months? We saw depression go way up. Suicide numbers go way up. Overdose way up. Domestic violence. All of these, all of this data went way up, but they weren't, nobody was worried about that data. Everybody was worried about this big bad disease and the data that was all about our health and safety. What about our spiritual health and safety? What about our mental health and safety? And that comes through pressing into Jesus Christ. Isolation, the devil was at work in the isolation prowling about. We need each other. As Jesus prayed for the disciples and, and he said they need each other, they need to come together as after they're scattered, they need each other. He prayed for all of us and said they need each other. We need unity. The enemy is using all that is going on in the world that is dividing. It's not just COVID, but from COVID, you have whether or not people should be wearing masks or whether or not people should be vaccinated or whether or not there should be mandates in the vaccination or whether or not so-and-so should be president or governor or senator or whatever. It's all dividing issues. All of it is dividing issues, and it's happening in the church. Jesus prayed against all of that because he prayed for unity. Why do we struggle with unity? Sin. That's the answer, it's sin. We could fix the world if we fix the sin problem. Sanctification, 
That's what Jesus prayed for. Redemption, salvation. And it's nothing else. We try to put the the label on different social or economic issues and we say those are the problems. No, they're not. Sin's the problem and sin causes those other problems. People need Jesus. We need Jesus. And Jesus desires unity. This oneness comes through relationship with Jesus and it's only through relationship with Jesus that we will accomplish this oneness. We'll continue in closing how else we can, we can have this oneness. It's as we glorify Christ. Verse 22 tells us that. We cannot have unity with the world because they don't glorify Christ. Look around. If something isn't glorifying Jesus, then it's not of him. So therefore, we know we don't, we're not going to have unity in that. But the, the world tries to have unity, and they don't realize that they can have unity. There's, it's not possible apart from Christ. If they're not glorifying Christ, they will not have unity. Again, unity is not uniformity. We are all different and should be. But we can rejoice in those differences as we glorify Christ. And it's Christ in us that brings unity. Christ in us will keep us humble because that's his heart. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29 says this, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's one of the few things that we are directly told of the heart of Jesus. He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart heart of Christ is humility. And then continue, it's through love. It's through love for God. It's through love for one another. And our love for God should bring us to greater love for one another. And then Jesus, of course, ends his prayer with a triumphant proclamation. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have, have known that you sent me. That's so important that he came from the Father. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it. That the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. The love that is in Christ Jesus is in each of us through relationship. That's how we'll bring unity and Jesus saying that I have declared your name. All of the, we've already said it. He has manifested, he has shown them, he has revealed the name of the Father, his, the, his glory, his character, his nature, his authority. And I will continue to, to, to declare it, that your love for them, for my disciples, for all those who would believe would remain and that I would remain in them. Let's pray.